source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. If you don't have your Bible... You can find Romans 2 on page 940 of the Blue Pew Bible. Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that You yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Word of our Lord. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we come to His Word. <clears throat> Lord, we pray that you would use this word in our hearts, that we would be encouraged to be sincere people, people of the heart, people who have been renewed by God himself. Lord, that we, on the one hand, would not be satisfied with anything less than sincerity, but on the other hand, would not... um, Use this as a new law by which we try to earn our salvation. Lord, it would be helpless dependence, trusting in you alone, 
crying out to you alone. Even as we realize our own lack of sincerity at times, our own hardness of heart, our own hypocrisy, that even that would drive us to faith, drive us to say, oh Lord, save me. And Lord, we pray that we would not be satisfied with going through the motions, that we would not be satisfied with just showing up in church and singing a few hymns and going home and going about our business. Oh Lord, that our life with you with you uh, would be real and complete, and it would be the dominant force. It would be the controlling thing in our life, Lord, that we would be truly yours in Christ Jesus. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. Save us from all that could stand in the way of our trust in you. For we ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Well, one of the things you hear most out there is the hypocrisy in the church, and we certainly see our share of it everywhere in where Christianity shows itself. America seems to be the showcase uh, for hypocrisy, showcase for weirdness, the showcase for men and women on camera, uh, boasting and parading around like roosters. <laughs> uh, my wife has said many times, I just hate sometimes when we introduce ourselves and I tell them that you're a preacher because I have no idea what's going through their mind. <laughs> you know? And they think, oh, preacher, okay, I know what that is. You know, <clears throat> I had a just a little anecdote, but I had, when we were in, uh, Rhode Island, and you know, Rhode Island really is has very little gospel going on. We have a church planted in Providence now, and, uh, so there's a real start, and there's some other evangelical churches there, but it's really known as a place largely devoid of the gospel. So we were staying in somebody's summer home up there, and we met a guy right down the highway, and he happened to make piano keys. Some of you have heard this story. He made piano keys and sold them in Europe, okay? So we were talking back and forth. I was asking him how it was going, and he said, well, I have a real problem. My cash flow is a huge problem. He says, because I really need money to get to Europe to sell the keys, but I need to get to Europe to get the money, you know? He said, it's just a real problem. He says, and he turns to me, he had no idea. He knew I was a preacher, but he had no idea what I did or, you know, what it looked like. And he says, it's like what you do. You, you get up and you speak, and if people like it, they give you money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wouldn't get paid a lot of Sundays uh, if that were the case. <clears throat> I'm not paid to make people happy necessarily, all right? Well, there are just so many different ways in which people look at believers. And this passage is interesting because Paul is addressing the Jews with this issue. And it's easy for us, of course, to stand, just, just as the Jews in chapter 1 were standing back and saying, yeah, give it to those Gentiles, you know. We come along and say in chapter 2, yeah, give it to those Jews, you know. But there is so much here to call us uh, 
to grace and to God's salvation and so much that we have to examine ourselves about, which we'll hope to do here in this hour. But that, that question of a sincerity, which we've touched upon, it's a scary question for us. It's really scary. It's, it's easy if it's like, so if I go to church, if I read my Bible every day, if I attend Sunday school, well, that'll be extra, okay? Um, if I give so much to the church, that'll be another mark in these things. But when it's asked that, are you sincerely trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you sincerely living out your faith in Him? Do you sincerely love God? That's, that's a question that is not easy for us. But it's a question that we all must ask. This is what Paul is after with the Jews. Whatever their religious involvement at that time was, the end result is that when Christ was presented to the Jewish nation as a whole and in the diaspora, the, the scattering around the Mediterranean basin and all of the Jewish synagogues, largely they said no, largely no, to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which shows that whatever their heart was toward God, it was not sincere. And all of their obedience and all of their religious activity and all of their attendance to the synagogue, in the end, meant nothing. In the end, it was proven to be empty and shallow and meaningless. That it had nothing of sincere love to God. Now, for those who had the beginnings of that love to God when the gospel came to them, then they trusted in Jesus Christ. Or when others who perhaps weren't, you know, had not fully given themselves up to God, when he was revealed in Christ, the Lord drew them to himself. But for many, it wasn't. And this is what Paul is addressing in this passage. He's, he's speaking to the Jews saying, as we've already talked about, You think by having the law and by having circumcision, by being the special people of God, that you get a free ticket, that you're in a protective bubble, that God's judgment is is not going to fall on you. And so actually they became lax in their obedience, shallow in their approach to God, and they were using these things as a way to do not to be sincere before God at all in their obedience. Interestingly, they're not being called here because of their self-righteousness so much as their disobedience to God. Disobedience is the thing hit on again and again and again. So in this passage, verses 17 through 24, Paul strips away their dependence on the law. And in verses 25 through 29, obviously, he strips away their dependence on circumcision. And it's... as Most any commentator will tell you this is so brilliantly written, rhetorically. It's just an excellent piece of literature. It's it's framed carefully. The uh, grammar is excellent. The way he builds his argument in verses 17 through 24 is amazing. Using verbs in 17 and 18, five in a row, talking about who who they think they are in relation to God. You call yourself a Jew, and that forms the kind of an inclusion because he ends there too. Here's what a Jew is in verses 28 and 29. So that's the little envelope, the little frame for this section. You call yourself a Jew, and he ends up describing what a Jew is. 
But it builds in that first verse. You call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. And relying on the law meant that they so relied on the law as it's set forth, for instance, in uh, Micah chapter 3, verse 11. says this, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So Paul, in that prophetic way, saying, you think that you're going to be protected in the judgment of God, that you don't need God's mercy as it's revealed in Christ Jesus, but you're wrong. You are in danger of the judgment of God, even as the Gentiles are. But you rely on the fact that you're the special people of God. You're called by that name Jew, which was originally what they call those who lived in Judah, but now it's owned by the Jews themselves. And it distinguished them from everyone else. And he says, and this is so important to the argument, and you know his will, you approve what is excellent because you're, you're instructed from the law, catechized from the law. You, above all the peoples, are able to discern what is truly excellent and what is not. And he's not making fun of this. It really is the case. I mean, they really did have the law of God. They really were the special people of God. He's not, he's not ironical here. He's not saying, well, you think that you're the special people of God. You think that you... Uh, he's saying, this is what you say you are. This is what you were made to be. You do have his law, but the problem is how you're responding to that law, what you're doing with that law. Then the next two verses... and. The argument runs in twos here, two verses at a time. Now, he goes to your relationship then to the Gentiles. This is you with, with God, the first two verses. Now, your relationship to the Gentiles, you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. And then again, as he does at the end of verse 18, talking about the law, he says, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So every, every religion, all peoples everywhere want knowledge and truth. You have the embodiment of it, and you know it. You know as Jews, we have the truth from God, and nobody else has it. What should the response be to that? Where the response had become that we're better than everybody else. We have a privilege that nobody else has, and it caused them to turn away from the Gentiles and to despise the Gentiles, not to love the Gentiles. So they did see themselves, though, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And there are passages like Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6, in which Israel and the Messiah to come, you are a light to the Gentiles. But what had they done with that privilege? And so he brings it to a close. In fact, it's abrupt because he begins in verse 17. If this, if that, well, he never really finishes it. He just cuts it off and it's like a barrage suddenly. It's like uh, uh, the, in Jumanji, at, the, at one point in that movie, if you've seen it, they're standing at this door and they don't know that a tropical thunderstorm has occurred inside the house, okay? And there's creaking and, and suddenly the, the doors burst open and they're flooded. And that's kind of how verse 21 is. 
So all of these things, all these things you are in God, all these things that you are to the world, you who teach others, how do you not teach yourself? That's the overall, that's the summary statement. And then he makes it specific, talking about the Ten Commandments, pulling stealing and adultery and idolatry from uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And this doesn't mean that every single Jew was involved in these things. There is an increasing throughout the first century. In fact, before the destruction of of, uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, the the rabbinical uh, writings are just full of lamenting over the immorality of the Jews. And they're spinning out of control uh, ethically and morally. But there are those kinds of things written in this day as well. And so the idea is you're standing on the law, you as a people, as a nation, and yet you steal, you commit adultery. There are instances of these things, even from leaders. Instances uh, that, in, in terms of stealing, because of their love of money, because of their desire to get ahead, to cut a deal. And the same thing with idolatry, abhorring idols on the one time, on one hand, but then if it meant making a little money on a stolen good, well, okay, that's fine. So the hypocrisy, the fact that you are boasting in this law and standing in it, but you're not overall as a people, you are not concerned to love God and love people. The real essence of this law You are breaking this law and dishonoring God. He even takes this passage as he concludes this section. Uh, Isaiah 52, uh, 5 is talking about how uh, the, the nations would blaspheme God in the exile saying, hey, your God couldn't protect you. And so God is blasphemed. Now Paul is using that passage and saying, well, really what was behind that blasphemy was the fact that you had sinned to put yourself in that situation. And now he brings that forward and saying, now it is your immorality. It is because of the way you live that God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. People don't like what they see. And you are meant to be a glory to God and a light to the world. You're a darkening to God. You're turning people away from God. Now, there were, there were Gentiles attached to the synagogues, and there were faithful uh, Jews. And, and the law itself shone through in so many cases. People began to read the, the writings uh, of the Old Testament and be drawn to the synagogue worship. But even then, isn't it interesting that so many of the synagogues it was the, the Jews largely wouldn't believe in the gospel, but it was the Gentiles attached to the synagogue who believed in the gospel. And so at their heart, their heart was not truly given up to God. They were lax in their obedience. It was not a heart obedience. It was going through the motions of rituals. It was going through the motions of being at the synagogue. It was thinking, as long as we have it, as long as we know it, as long as we can teach it, then it's okay. We really don't have to live this out. And God will bring judgment upon the Gentiles because they don't even have the law. They don't even have circumcision. And circumcision, moving to that section, circumcision was, there there's statements that there was no circumcised man that will enter into Gehenna. No circumcised man that will enter into hell. 
that, that's, a, that's just practically a guarantee. Once you're circumcised, you're in. You've got it. You're safe. So everything you see was, had to do with privilege and, and ritual and the outward uh, signs that they were holding on to. But the heart of the matter was not there. And it showed itself that when Messiah himself, the full revelation of this Yahweh that they proposed to worship, revealed himself to them, they said, no, no, I will not trust you. I will not love you. I will not give myself up to you, O God. Now, that's not literally what they said, but that's practically what they said in rejecting the revelation of God on earth through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, jumping to circumcision suddenly, and these are shocking words to the Jews of that day. Circumcision has value, and and this means value in the day of judgment, okay? Ultimate value. It has some meaning in the day of judgment if you have obeyed the law. If you've been one who had a fundamental life of faith in God and dependence on His mercy and giving yourself up to love God and love others. Yeah, then circumcision means something because circumcision is a seal and it's intended to indicate the nature of what has occurred in a person's heart. And that's why we teach our children even about baptism that the worst thing in the world is to be a baptized child with the sign of God's grace upon you, the sign of the work of Jesus Christ on you, and then to reject that grace, to say no to Jesus Christ. When you have the very sign, in a, in a sense, it's like taking the ring off and throwing it down in God's presence. I don't want you. I know you gave me this promise and this tremendous opportunity and possibility and you preached the gospel to me, but I don't want it. I don't want it. So we don't teach our children, hey, you're baptized, you're in, you're safe, you're good. No, no. We we declare to them, even as in the Old Testament, we declare to them the necessity of believing in this Lord Jesus Christ and having this renewing work in your heart even as this was proclaimed in the Old Testament concerning circumcision. And by the way, this shows that verses 28 and 29 were really important to me to understand uh, infant baptism because I was taught for a while that circumcision was just a national sign, but now baptism is a spiritual sign. And when I really began to understand 28 and 29, I think it does apply, and certainly the readers, uh, the hearers of this would assume that they, those Gentile Christians who have the Spirit in Jesus Christ, would realize Paul is making some allusion to them as well here. But this would have applied in the Old Testament as well. You're not a real Jew. Nobody's ever been a real Jew unless they were circumcised of heart. That's what circumcision was all about. That's what it pointed to, a real spiritual relationship with God. If you didn't have that spiritual relationship, if you didn't have that heart circumcision, in the truest sense, you weren't a Jew. It didn't just happen right here, although it's really coming to the forefront and the the division is becoming very clear when Messiah comes on the scene. But, But that was always the case. Circumcision is a spiritual sign and it indicates a necessary work that must be done in our hearts for that sign to have any meaning whatsoever. Because if you break the law, if you do not have the circumcision of heart, Paul says, circumcision has no value. It means nothing. 
And on the other hand, though, the man who is uncircumcised and he keeps the precepts of the law, he lives it out. And, of course, this means in the fullest sense, as indicated in verse 29, this circumcision of the heart is a matter of the Holy Spirit, not just the outward letter. And that contrast is given several times in Paul. For instance, later in chapter 7, verse 6, we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Indicating that the law in and by itself as just law cannot renew our hearts. It must be done by God. It must be done by the Spirit. He must renew us. The law itself is helpless. It can tell us what to do, but it can't change us. Uh, Only God can change us by His Spirit. And so... As we look at this addressing of the Jew, we have to ask the question, what about us? And it's amazing that Paul, as he's warning the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about how our fathers, that is our Jewish fathers, our forefathers, were all under the cloud in the desert. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, he's drawing these analogies. He's saying, okay, you say you're baptized, but you're fooling around with idolatry. They were baptized. They were baptized into Moses. You say, oh, but we eat of the Lord's Supper and we're protected against those things. We don't really have to guard ourselves. He says, hey, they ate spiritual food. They drank a spiritual rock and it was Christ. See how he's trying to draw those together and say, you are living dangerously. You're living on the edge. You're saying it doesn't matter how I live or what I think or what I do because I'm protected. So much like the Jews there. So he's addressing Christians in the same way. And we as well can have an unrepentant heart. We can have a settled way of justifying our lack of involvement in God's people. We can say, well, I attend. I know a lot of Christians. I know a lot about Christ. Uh, We can say, I'm a teacher. There are a lot of ministers that think because they went to seminary or because I really know the Bible. I can explain about Jesus Christ. Oh, I know all that. Or it can even be as bad as what used to be. Oh, I'm not a communist. You know, I'm not a criminal. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a liberal. You know, and of course, none of that means anything. What means something? What Paul is driving out here at here is sincere heart obedience. That the kingdom of power, the kingdom of God's spirit through Jesus Christ has broken into this world. There is heart obedience for the taking, or we might say for the trusting. There's a real heart change that is brought about in the gospel. As, Paul, as, the writer, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, he will put his law in our hearts. We think that's what Paul refers to earlier in this passage. In verse 15, they show the work of the law written on their hearts. 
And here, the circumcision of heart, which is so much like Ezekiel, he'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, the circumcision of heart. And that address in Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise, and it gets really graphic here, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Or the promise in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, I, and I renew you, will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so, throughout Scripture, it's not just that you are saved from the guilt of your sin. You and I have to be saved from what we are. We have to be saved from what we are as human beings. What we love by nature as human beings. What our desires are as human beings. What our heart is by nature, a heart of stone. We have to be rescued inside out. It's salvation. Salvation from sin. You should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Their sin. But this is the glorious message from top to bottom. Ephesians 2 opens so dreadfully, talking about the sin that we were in and how we're given up to the lust of the flesh and all of and, and the, the, uh, that we were children of wrath by nature and then enter in the grace of God. He raised us up. So we, we come to him and we can confess, Lord, I have a heart of stone. That's all I have. We can come to him like the people who came to Jesus needing healing. It's similar. It's just like us spiritually. We come with the same helplessness. We say, I've got a disease. I'm broken. I'm lost. I can't change myself. I can't make myself well. Lord, change me. Save me. Have you cried out? It doesn't have to be those exact words, but is that the nature of your faith in Jesus Christ? It's not shrugging your shoulders and deciding in the end, well, I'll I'll go to church. I'll be a part of things. I'll join a committee. I might teach. At the heart of everything is that helpless cry. And the good news is that we can say, Lord, save me from hypocrisy. Save me from my insincerity. I see it, Lord. I see how I want to please others and not please you. I see how different I am when I'm with them and when I'm alone with you. I see it, Lord. Save me from it. Make me real. I see my own hardness of heart. And the the call in Hebrews 3.6 is to continue to hold fast your confidence in Him. You see? To keep trusting, even when you see sin in your life. Keep falling before Him. Keep asking Him to rescue you and change you. The, the, when he says, and this is how important fellowship is, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Make sure there's not in any one of you a sinful, unbelieving heart, an evil, unbelieving heart. That's the real danger that in our struggle we'll stop helplessly falling before him and asking him, continually being before him and saying, Oh Lord, deliver me, save me, draw me after yourself. And this whole attitude of having something that other people don't have. I've been to uh, Christian political meetings before and I was at one 
that I just had to walk out of because there was no Christian love in that meeting. Just all ridicule and the worst kind of uh, hatred. Uh, it, it was terrible. And one of the things that will help you and me is the doctrine of God's sovereign salvation. His sovereign salvation. That expressed in uh, hymn 469, if you turn there with me, hymn 469, a hymn that we've sung a lot. You see, we believe that it's not your choice ultimately. All of us must choose. All of us must believe. But we believe that it is God's initiative in our life that God drew us to himself, that God chose us, and that if, if he had not done so, we would never have come to him. And, and so in Scripture, Jesus says that, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. You can't pat yourself on the back and say, well, I believed and Joe over here didn't. And when, when Peter cried out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, Flesh and blood didn't show this to you, but my Father in heaven showed it to you. That's the only reason you could confess that, Peter. And it's expressed so beautifully in this passage, in, verse, in this hymn, verse 3. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? Notice, I was made to hear your voice. Jesus says his sheep will hear his voice. He will make us hear his voice. He will, he will break in and, and grab our heart and make himself known to us. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? And the point is, I would have rather starve than come, but you made me hear your voice. In verse 4, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got an order. I'm just kidding. Yeah, we may just sing that. <clears throat> But here's the point that God's initiative in our life causes us to humble ourselves. And the fact that we have the word, the fact that we have the gospel, the fact that we have truth doesn't make us then ultimately. Of course, we've got to separate ourselves from the world. And yes, we can't walk in the ways of the world, but to pull away and to be that be all we do is to separate from instead of go to the world as Christ did the lost sheep. Uh, it gives the illustration. And it's interesting in Luke 15, he puts the, illustri- the illustration is, okay, you Pharisees, you're concerned that I'm receiving sinners. Let me tell you a couple of parables. And it's the parable of the lost sheep. And it's a parable of the lost coin. And then it's the parable of the prodigal son. And in every case, he says, there was joy over the one that was brought. As opposed to the, the, the uh, Pharisees who were mad that Jesus was even talking to them. So you see this self-righteousness, this sense of, ooh, we got to stay away from them in the bad sense instead of we've been given something from God and we're to sacrifice ourselves for the world. and We're to live out Jesus' sacrifice for us in the way we sacrifice for the world. So I end with this great passage in Titus chapter 3. It's found on page 998. I know we're going a bit late, but... Bear with me just this one more passage. Notice Paul's argument here in how you deal with outsiders. 
Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And now he kind of defines that. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay? A love and a servanthood toward everybody, and it shows in the way you talk, it shows in your attitude. Okay, why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What happened? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, the change of the Holy Spirit, even though we deserve nothing. And He just described what we were like, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, He says, you must be careful to devote yourself to love because you have been loved when you were unlovable. That's the only way we'll keep from doing the very same thing is that we taste of His grace and we live that grace out in our lives. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we, we tremble when we talk about sincerity of heart. Lord, we all know how much there is in us that is insincere. And so, Lord, cause us to trust in you. Cause us to helplessly depend upon you. And every time all the sin that we see in our lives, let us always bring it to your grace saying, Lord, forgive me, and Lord, change me. And Lord, thank you that you take hold of my life. And Lord, if there is someone here whose life is really marked by largely no sincerity and just a dabbling, so to speak, in Christianity, just on the fringes, on the edges, oh Lord, may that man or woman or that boy or girl right now say, Lord Jesus, I give myself up to you. Oh, Lord, transform my heart. Take out my stony heart and give me a heart of flesh. Put your spirit within me and cause me to walk in your ways. Oh, Lord, give your grace abundantly to those who cry out to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Fears away. Whoa.
Won't you chase my fears away?